In your experience, how rare have you encountered people proclaiming innocence and asking you to take on their case, and you look into it and you think, I don't know, sure looks like this guy's guilty? Yeah, common. I would say it's a lot more common as we look into people's cases and think, oh God, this person is very likely innocent and there's nothing we can do about it. That happens every mm -hmm. day and that's super depressing. But of course there's people sitting in prison who want to get out and are guilty and are seeing as an opportunity. Let me throw the spaghetti against the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. I mean, that, it's just naive for anyone to think that's never going to happen. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That was Justin Brooks, founder of the California Innocence Project. We spoke to Justin recently in episode 71 of Labyrinths. You might go to prison even though you're innocent. We called him up because we were feeling lost ourselves in an ethical dilemma. After very publicly advocating for the innocence of a man named Jens Zuring, who spent over 30 years in prison for a double murder he says he didn't commit, we encountered new information that gave us reason to doubt his innocence. That led us to get in touch with a journalist named Andrew Hamill, who had written extensively and persuasively about Jens's case, arguing for his guilt. Hamill has also written articles attempting to debunk other prominent innocence claims. We wondered at his motives and how much he was aligned with the loose cluster of YouTubers and podcasters that make up the innocence fraud movement. This innocence fraud crowd seems to think that the work of the Innocence Project is mostly bullshit and that by and large, they are working to free guilty people from prison. Judging by those who are obsessed with my case, there's a lack of rigor, a penchant for misinformation, and plenty of irrational thinking. From reading Andrew Hamill's writing, he seemed more sane than this crowd. But before connecting with him, we felt the need to get a reality check from Justin Brooks, who has over 30 years of experience advocating for the wrongly convicted. We trust Justin and wanted to know, how frequently do people who are actually guilty get exonerated? I have been burned a couple of times in 25 years in DNA cases where I have gone out and given a whole speech to the incarcerated individual about, you know, don't have us do this test if it's going to come back as you. Because in DNA cases, you never really know if someone's innocent or guilty until you do the test. So the typical cases we'll look at, and it'll be a stranger rape case, and it won't be a very good ID and the person says they're innocent. Well, they still could be guilty, but we won't know. There's no strong case for innocence until the testing is done. And twice in 25 years, uh, people have told me not to do the testing, and twice I've had it come back as them. And wow. then I've gone back, and in one of the cases- Why'd you waste my time? <laughs> yeah, the first one I was really angry. It was like the first year of our project back in 1999, and I had raised the money with literally bake sales to do this testing because there was no right to DNA testing being paid for by the government back then. And I was angry that they put me through it and had a you know conversation which was basically lose my address and phone number, don't contact me again. The second one was a brutal murder case. He came back on multiple homicide scenes and they were just really brutal killings. So 
this stuff is extraordinarily rare. Um, I believe no one has gone through the cracks of actually going to a court hearing and having judges declare them innocent. It's just this, the burden of proof is so high to prove innocence that the chances of that happening are very, very small. But what happens every day is innocent people sit in prison and no one can do anything about it. That all resonated with our own experience as journalists and advocates for the innocence movement. But what Justin Brooks said wouldn't apply to Yen Suring, who was never exonerated. Could it be that despite his persistent and persuasive innocence claims that had gathered many advocates to his cause over the decades, Jens was actually guilty? What you're about to hear is an interview with journalist Andrew Hamill about the Jens Zuring case. We're going to try our best to give you a quick primer here before diving in, but chances are there will be plenty of references to evidence and people from the 30-year history of the case that will be opaque if you're not familiar with it. If you're curious, we recommend that you go back and listen to Labyrinth's episode 47, where we interviewed Jens. And if you want a much more complete picture of the case for his innocence, you can listen to another podcast we made a few years ago, season three of The Truth About True Crime. You'll find a link in the episode description. Jens had been in prison for 33 years, longer than I'd been alive at that point serving two life sentences for the 1985 double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem, the parents of his girlfriend, Elizabeth Hasem. The parallels to my own case were startling. A brutal knife killing in a small town, two young lovers accused, one of them an exchange student, the femme fatale and the love slave. By 2019, when we produced that series, Jens had exhausted all his appeals and he'd been denied parole 14 times in a row. Over the course of many months, we got to know him through the prison phone system, and I immediately felt a strong connection. He seemed like a version of me who had never been exonerated. There was a lot of evidence in the case. A sock print, some movie stubs, the rental car mileage, and journal entries from Elizabeth fantasizing about the death of her parents. But the key pieces of evidence were the type O blood found at the crime scene and Jens's confessions, in which he admitted to killing the Hasems while Elizabeth stayed behind at a hotel to help him fake an alibi. Those pieces of evidence were crucial in Jens's 1990 conviction. But by 2018, when the case came onto our radar, Jens's advocates claimed that DNA now showed that the type O blood wasn't his and that it belonged to an unknown male. That evidence convinced one of the original detectives to change his mind and advocate for Jens's innocence. It got the attention of Jason Flom, founding board member of the Innocence Project. Soon, Jens could count among his supporters people like actor Martin Sheen and novelist John Grisham. During the course of our podcast series, we spoke with DNA expert Tom McClintock, who confirmed that the DNA exonerated Jens. We spoke with a false confessions expert, Andy Griffiths, who made a compelling case that Jens's confessions were inconsistent with the physical evidence and that Jens had truly been lying to protect Elizabeth, as he claimed. Frankly, we were convinced. If the DNA proved the type O blood at the crime scene wasn't his, every other piece of evidence pointing to Jens's guilt had to be faulty. Jens never got the exoneration he hoped for, but a few months after our podcast series released, he was paroled and deported to Germany. We were eager to visit him, but the pandemic intervened, 
and it wasn't until a few years later that we were finally able to fly to Germany to meet Jens in person. That is the interview you'll find if you go back and listen to Labyrinths number 47. In that episode, entitled The Ultimate Putts, Jens presents an image of himself as a naive and boneheaded kid who'd only confessed to save his girlfriend, a decision that spectacularly backfired on him. A while later, we stumbled upon the writing of Andrew Hamill, who'd been vociferously arguing for Jens's guilt. That led us to read a 500-page report written by Detective Terry Wright, one of the original detectives who took Jens Zering's confessions when he was first arrested. The Wright report presented many compelling arguments for Jens's guilt, most importantly that the DNA evidence wasn't exonerating. Wright argued that the DNA results that supposedly excluded Jens were A, not necessarily from blood, but could be from skin cells, sweat, or saliva, B, that though they were all degraded and partial, they were all consistent with each other in identifying a single male, and C, as they were found in samples of Derek Hasem's blood, they were highly likely, as in million to one odds or greater, to be from Derek Hasem. This would mean that there was no unknown male, and that the type O blood could still very well belong to Jens. This didn't prove Jens guilty, but it shook our confidence in his innocence. Without DNA definitively exonerating him, all the other evidence took on a much different hue. The confessions especially looked much more incriminating. There were multiple confessions. They were not coerced, and the inconsistencies with the crime scene were very minor. We found ourselves in a crisis. Jens had become our friend. We'd advocated for his innocence over a period of years. We didn't know what to think. We didn't know what to say to Jens. We didn't know if we had a responsibility to say anything at all. But we knew our greatest allegiance was to the truth and that that trumped any other concern. So we decided to have a frank conversation with Andrew Hamill, who has become the foremost proponent of Jens's guilt. We didn't know what to expect. I grew up in Houston, Texas, and uh, I went to first to the University of Texas at Austin, got an English degree. I worked in a mental hospital for four years, which was exciting, but not very uh, rewarding and very stressful. So I went to law school at the University of Houston. I got my JD degree. And in 1996, I became a lawyer in Texas, and I immediately went to work for a non-government organization law firm called Texas Defender Service. They represent death row inmates. I did that for about five years, and uh, it was also very stressful and not very remunerative, but you know, hugely rewarding. Um, but then I decided I wanted to become a professor, so I went to Harvard Law School and I got an LLM, a Master's of Law. And then uh, in actually in 2003, I relocated to Germany because I'd done some teaching gigs here. And I found I really liked it. I liked the weather, the climate, which is very much like the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. and the people. And uh, so I was an assistant professor for about 12, 13 years. Then I just became a freelance journalist and writer and translator. So now I speak fluent German, and I now make my living by doing sort of like specialty translations, translating books and sometimes literature in basically like legal and political stuff, which is my forte. You mentioned that when you were working for the Texas Defenders group, do you have any like specific memory that really captures that for you? Oh, yeah, there's so many of them. Every you know criminal defense lawyer likes to go back to are the victories. 
And so uh, I was always part of a team working with more senior lawyers who also deserve the credit. But working with other lawyers, I managed to get a guy off death row, Paul Colella, and uh, we worked out a deal with him and he was released from death row and he's now living a free man. I also designed the legal argument that went to the Supreme Court twice in the case of Thomas Joe Miller L. Those are decisions from 2003 and 2005. So the Supreme Court decided his case twice and approved my argument that if you're looking for racial discrimination in jury selection, you should be able to look at a very broad array of evidence, including historical records. And uh, so Thomas Joe Millerell is also off death row. But first of all, most of my clients were guilty and they didn't really contest it. Um, and the one loss that really absolutely burns me to this day, a guy named Johnny Joe Martinez, he definitely did the crime. He stabbed a convenience store clerk to death and then immediately gave himself up, pointed police to the murder weapon, never contested his guilt. And after about 12 years on death row, he was so reformed and so remorseful that the victim's mother actually stepped in and wrote the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles saying, do not execute this man. He has been reformed. Um, but they voted by one vote, by eight to seven, not to grant him just a commutation, not getting free from death row. All it would have done is turn his death sentence into a life sentence, and they wouldn't give him that, and he was executed right after meeting with the mother of the victim and holding hands and praying with her and hoping that Texas would do the right thing. So that's where we failed. I'm wondering what you can tell me about your familiarity with the Innocence Project, with the Innocence Movement in general, and the work that they're doing. I've been aware of the Innocence Project since their very beginnings at Cardozo Law School in NYU. I've met the two founders, Peter Schack and Barry Neufeld, uh, a good friend of mine is working for the Innocence Project right now, and many friends of mine have worked for them at some point or another. It's now gone on to become a huge nationwide phenomenon with branches almost everywhere. Back in the 90s when I was coming up, it was very new and very controversial because what the Innocence Project were generally doing is they would take on a case. At first, they limited themselves to, in to DNA cases. Precisely because DNA, if it's found in the right context, with the right level of forensic strength, and shows a clear profile, and those are all very important questions, but if it does, then you've got very good proof that the person is innocent. And what would happen is they would get permission to conduct DNA tests, or, or they would conduct them based on their own you know, financing and support. And then prosecutors all over the USA would say, well, who cares? This is newfangled stuff. You know, we don't know what it proves. And we have this eyewitness testimony and this bite mark evidence that shows our guy did it. And there is a jury verdict and the, all the appeals courts upheld it. And so Sheck, Neufeld and the original founders, they had to really fight against these narrow headed, block headed district attorneys all over the country, not just in the South. He would just say, you know, it's a settled final conviction and it's all been upheld. And we monitored that extremely carefully. And I went to many, many presentations from uh, Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld and many, many others. There are lots of these cases in which recalcitrant, angry prosecutors would not allow DNA testing. 
then they finally get defeated, the DNA testing is done, and it conclusively proves innocence. And they still do a lot of great work, absolutely. Um, but the thing is, as I've said before, a lot of the low-hanging fruit cases, where there's clear, unambiguous DNA evidence, they've been plucked. Jens Zuring approached the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project in the late 2010s and uh, wrote letters to them along with his supporters and along with his lawyer, and they declined to take the case. When we first connected with Hamill, we knew he was convinced of Jens's guilt and skeptical of other high-profile innocence cases. But he made a point to tell me that he'd looked into my case and saw how obvious my innocence was. I wasn't sure what to make of that. But after hearing of his death penalty defense work, and his intimate familiarity with the work of the Innocence Project, it seemed more apparent that he was not just some troll with an axe to grind against Jens. What led you to become interested or invested even in the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem? You know, I've known about this case for literally decades. So in 1985 is when the crime was committed. And I'm sure I saw a couple of headlines about it um, because it was nationwide news. And then in, I was 22 in 1990 when the trial was actually conducted and televised. You know, it played pretty often on court TV to fill up afternoons. And at that time, I was working nights at a mental hospital, so I had time in the afternoons. And actually, watching his trial was one of the reasons I went to law school. It was just fascinating, all the constitutional issues involved. And so I went to law school from 93 to 96. And during law school, his case was also important because he generated an important case from the European Court of Human Rights in 1989 called Suring versus the United Kingdom. And it's a very important human rights case, which says that regardless of whether a country has capital punishment or not, if you put people on death row and force them to wait for years and years and years in uncertainty about whether they're going to be executed, that itself is cruel and unusual treatment. And uh, so that is why Virginia was forced to give up seeking the death penalty against them, which I obviously agree with. I'm completely opposed to the death penalty and have been my entire life. And then when I was a death row lawyer, we used this case also. We tried to get the U.S. Supreme Court to follow the lead of the European Court of Human Rights. And in fact, a couple of Supreme Court justices said we should look into this. It is kind of torturous and cruel. And then I came to Germany. The case still didn't let me go because especially starting around 2007, when Zuring, his case really got traction, my students would come up and say, well, you're a criminal defense lawyer. You're familiar with death row and capital cases. Can you do something for Yen Zuring? He says he's innocent. I've seen an interview with him. And so I'd known about the case for a long time. I only really decided to look at it in detail in 2018 um, because I was looking for story projects to pitch to newspapers, something that would be inter of interest to German readers. And uh, I stumbled upon the weblog, which I'm sure you're aware of, called, I think, Yin Suring Guilty as Charged. It's by an English solicitor who wants to remain anonymous. And at first, I was a bit skeptical because some of his entries are pretty acerbically formulated, one could say. 
But he clearly had access to confidential documents in fold, which he posted on his website. And through him, I got to know Terry Wright, and I eventually got him to agree to let me read his report. And then I wrote a bunch of articles in the FAZ and other places in Germany. And then from then on, it's been sort of this back and forth between me and Zuring, which I never wanted it to be, but that's how it's turned out. Before digging more into that, what were your initial impressions way back in 1990 when you were watching the case unfold on court TV? Did you have an opinion then about whether justice was being served or whether it was being derailed? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I have to like consult back into my marijuana fogged memory for that. But <laughs> I do remember especially watching his testimony and Elizabeth Hasem's testimony, because those are the big things that, you know, Court TV focused on, not these abstruse forensic reports. And of course, she was aggressively cross-examined by Richard Neaton, who showed that she had definitely lied about many things and had given inconsistent statements to the police. And then they showed his testimony. And basically, all the legal analysts viewed him as being extremely arrogant. And he didn't come across well at all. This being news commentary, they didn't really go into depth on whether his story made sense or not. They were just sort of superficially remarking on whether he was making a good impression on the jury. But then, after he was convicted, the whole story just basically went away and nobody bothered to really look into it much anymore. Can you estimate roughly the number of hours that you've put in or <laughs> the number of articles or essays that you've written or even like the number of interviews that you've participated in? Like, quantify for us how much Yen Sering's case has been a part of your life. Oh, yeah, I've got pretty good views on all of that. Just as Yen Sering can say exactly how many days he was uh, in prison. So I've given probably about 20 interviews in English and German to all sorts of different people, including Netflix. I've actually written five stories and essays in German for the Berliner Zeitung and Übermedien and the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. FAZ, FAZ is actually Germany's premier newspaper. And I've written about 25,000 words on the case for them and essays in other places. I've written in English on the website Quillette. And uh, I've now, I've, I'm sure I've spent probably at least 1,000 or 1,200 hours on this case. I now have a vast archive, including basically every one of Yenzering's press appearances in both languages, his entire trial transcripts and all of his appeals. And I've also cultivated about four or five anonymous sources who have provided me with absolutely crucial information. And so, yeah, if you want to say that I've become obsessed by this case, I have to say guilty as charged. The only mitig the mitigating factor that I can cite to reduce my culpability and, you know, me seeming crazy is that beginning in around 2019, when I published my first article, I was the only journalist on the face of the earth to really skeptically question Yin's Zering's story. So I was the only one. Nobody else was doing it back then at that point. And especially in Germany, because he was generally accepted as being clearly innocent in the German media until really middle of 2022. Things have drastically changed now. But and I got to say mostly because of me, because, you know, every time a reporter wanted another opinion or a skeptical view and they wanted somebody who wasn't just going to say, oh, he's a horrible murderer, they would come to me. And so I was the go to person, the point person. 
And you know, people would send me confidential emails saying, I know Yin Zering is lying about this, and here is the documentary evidence to prove it, but I don't want to come forward because he'll sue me. Will you come forward? Because I can prove that he's lying. And, you know, I decided, okay, I'll do that. And, uh, and you know, I did get sued by him <laughs> and by his lawyer, and he's threatening me with another lawsuit. So their fears were justified, but I decided, you know, I, I've got a thick skin and I can take it. What are the conclusions that you've arrived at about this case? It sounds like you have a lot of different sources to draw from, but what would you say are the pieces of evidence that are most crucial to your determination? And how confident are you in that determination? I've studied a lot of true crime cases and also just crime cases. And, and I have absolutely no doubt that Yin Zering murdered the Hasems, none whatsoever, just like the jury didn't have a doubt. The key pieces of evidence are, of course, his five confessions. So his first thorough confession was given from June 5th to June 8th in Richmond, London, England, to two British detectives and an American detective. He described the crime in extraordinarily close detail, and virtually everything of what he said matches up with the crime scene evidence. All of the detectives believed he was telling the truth and still believe it to this day. And then the second confessions and third confessions came to British psychiatrists, Dr. Henrietta Bullard and Dr. John Hamilton. These were hired by Suring's defense team to try to put forward a psychological defense of reduced culpability. And he also described to both of these people uh, that these were actually the, some of the best experts in England. They probably cost thousands of pounds. And he described his motives, his psychological state, exactly how the crime went down, and exactly how he covered it up. But that's not all. He went on confessing. On December 30th, 1986, he gave a confession in his own native language of German to a prosecutor from Bonn, Germany, who had flown to England for this purpose. The prosecutor's name is Bernd Kernisch, uh, and Suring had his own defense lawyer at that discussion, a guy named Professor Dr. Andreas Frieser. And they both listened to Jensering confess in his own language for about two hours, and both of them also said at the time, clearly this happened. He was certainly telling the truth. And then the final confession that he gave, which you know has nothing to do with access to lawyers or whether he was held incommunicado, he confessed to a very shady guy named Matthias Schroeder. This was a German guy who was in jail with Yin Zering in 1986, and Matthias Schroeder is not a credible source. He went on to commit homicides and fraud, and he was still in German jail for various of these crimes. So the confession to him was not what you would call very credible, because it's a jailhouse snitch confession. We all know how problematic that can be, except for the fact that Yin Zering has admitted this confession. So he talked to a German police detective who wrote a book about the case in 2022. He said, yes, I did confess to Matthias Schroeder. He was a fellow German, two Germans out of hundreds of English people. And I think he's also acknowledged that in his Netflix interview in the series that's coming up. So the confessions largely corroborate the crime scene evidence. They explain why and how and when he did the crime and how he covered it up, and why he was successful in doing so. 
And so once you have a confession that is voluntary, not coerced, corroborated by crime scene evidence, you don't need to do a lot more, frankly. It's not as if you're coming from a total baseline of 0%. You already have most of the evidence you need. All you need to do is see if any other evidence directly and seriously contradicts that confession. That didn't happen. So we have the other evidence, which of course would not be enough on its own. The typo blood at the crime scene and Elizabeth Hazen's testimony, which is compromised but not completely worthless. And of course, we have the many incredibly incriminating statements and writings in Zuring's own letters and his diary. And so it all adds up to a conclusive, absolutely 100% solid case. So it sounds like the so in a hypothetical counterfactual world in which there was no confession, do you think the right outcome from a jury trial would have been inadequate evidence to convict? That's an interesting question. And in fact, you know, the investigators have also talked about this, including Terry Wright and uh, Ricky Gardner. I've spoken to them both personally. And both of them say without the confession, this probably would not have been a successful case. I'm not sure I would have convicted without the confession. We also, of course, have the sock print, but the sock print is also of very limited relevance. So I would agree that without the confession, you would probably have reasonable doubt. Can we spend a little more time on that confession? Um, we, of course, as you know, spoke to a false confessions expert, Andrew Griffiths, who presented supposed inconsistencies in Jens's confession. We'd love your take on that. And if you could walk us through the role of Jens's claim to be confessing in order to save Elizabeth, where does that story crop up in his confessions? Is it always present? Is it only in some of those confessions? Um, how does that play out in the story of the confessions? Sure. Another great question. First of all, let me say that Andy Griffiths appears to be a an experienced and credible and very reliable and professional guy. So I've never accused him of any kind of wrongdoing. I'm sure he's got his heart in the right place. I finally, through one of my sources, got his entire 21-page report and posted it on my blog with a two-part 5,000-word analysis. So I'm deeply familiar with his conclusions and his reasoning. And basically, when he created his report, it was in what I call the golden era of Yin Zering's innocence claims. Because this was after 2016, when Yin Zering claimed that DNA evidence proved that A, he was not at the crime scene, and B, two strange men were at the crime scene. And he was able to get two experts to confirm some aspects of this claim. And so Andy Griffiths went into this analysis thinking, this guy may probably be innocent. And so he explicitly cites in his analysis that Yenzering was excluded from the crime scene and that there's DNA evidence pointing to two other people, which we know now is not true. And he also claimed that Yenzering was denied any contact with lawyers during his June 1986 confessions in Richmond, England. And uh, we also now know that that is it's not true, but it's simply misleading. I invited Andy Griffiths explicitly, privately and on Twitter. I invited him to respond to any and all of my critiques. 
I pointed him to the blog entries that I posted. I alerted him that I was going to say that his report was inaccurate and insufficient in future publications. I begged him to come back and tell me what I had gotten wrong and whether he had any additional evidence or arguments to support his position. I have all this documented in detail. And he consulted Yin Zuring, and Yin Zuring said what he says to every one of his supporters. Do not speak to Andrew Hamill under any circumstances ever, period. This is, in fact, exactly what Jens told us. He said Andrew Hamill was just like the guilters who professed that Amanda was guilty, that he was a crazy obsessive who was hell-bent on ruining Jens's life. And so Andy Griffiths decided to go along with that advice and would not even respond to my good-faith journalistic requests for clarification. Now, so let's come to the second part of the question, which I think is when did he first mention that he was supposedly trying to save Elizabeth from the death penalty. And the answer to that is four years after he confessed in 1986. So, in his very first confession, partial confession, on June 5th of 1986, it started at just after 7 p.m. in Richmond Police Station in 1986, after about 10 or 15 minutes of interrogation by the two British detectives and Ricky Gardner, Yin Zering said, and I quote, I want to chat a little about Elizabeth's involvement, unquote. It's a direct quote. And so 15 minutes into his first confession, he was throwing Elizabeth under the bus because what he then went on to say was that, now, Elizabeth may try to claim that she was there at the crime scene or try to take responsibility off of me, but she wasn't at the crime scene. But what she did do is she remained back in Washington, D.C., and she helped me create an alibi for driving to Lynchburg and killing the Hastings. And she knew that I was going to go there, and she knew that if I didn't get the right answers from the Hastings, that I was going to kill them. And she agreed to help out in this plan and to provide me with an alibi. So that information that Yin Zering voluntarily gave to the police, 15 minutes into his first confession, proves that Elizabeth Hasem is guilty of the crime of accessory before the fact to capital murder, which in Virginia at that time carried a potential punishment of life in prison. Now, this was the crime that Elizabeth Hasem did, in fact, later confess to in 1987 at her trial in Bedford County. She confessed to the detectives, yes, I helped Yin Zuring plan this murder in create a fake alibi. And in 1987, she threw herself on the mercy of the court. She pled guilty to a crime which had a potential life sentence. And her lawyers told the judge, Your Honor, she's doing this totally against everything we've told her. We, we want to disown this. This is crazy. We've never had this in our careers. And she said, Your Honor, I am fully responsible for helping Yin Zering plan this crime to murder my parents, and I deserve whatever you want to give me, a life sentence or something else. She eventually got two 45-year sentences without any kind of deal or agreement. The judge just gave that to her. The first time Yin Zering ever said that he confessed to protect Elizabeth was at his trial in June 1990. However, before that, just about three months before, he said something totally different. 
when he was trying to get his own confessions to be declared inadmissible before the court in March 1990, early March, from March 2 to March 5, there was a three-day-long evidentiary hearing on whether Yin Zering's confessions were admissible. And the judge heard three days of testimony by everybody, including Yin Zering. And at this preliminary trial hearing, Yin Zering said, the reason I confessed was that one of the British detectives, Kenneth Beaver, threatened to harm Elizabeth Hasem. He said, if you don't give up your requests for a lawyer and immediately confess the crime, Elizabeth could hurt herself. As the judge later concluded in a written finding, which I have and I can share with you, this was a lie. Zuring could provide no written or oral or documentation of this at all. The detective, Kenneth Beaver, who was since retired with many, many honors and you know, recommendations, said, of course I didn't do that. That would destroy my career and put me in prison for ex extortion and perverting the course of justice. This is absurd. And so Judge Sweeney said, Yin Zering was lying under oath when he said that. I have to take some exception here. The Italian authorities responsible for coercing me into signing false statements after questioning me for dozens of hours in a foreign language, gaslighting me, berating me, threatening me, and slapping me on the back of the head, charged me with slander for telling the truth about what happened in that interrogation room. They said I could provide no proof that I'd been slapped. Of course I couldn't. I wasn't able to record those hours of questioning even if I wanted to, and it was the police who conveniently chose not to record the hours of interrogation in which they slapped me and finally broke me. Jens's inability to provide documentary proof of this claim is far from incriminating, and I find Hamill's eagerness to jump on that as a strike against his otherwise credible positions. And for what it's worth, my interrogators, like the detectives who questioned Jens, received honors and promotions for their actions. I'm not saying that I believe Jens's claim that Detective Beaver threatened him, but his inability to prove it and Beaver's professional accolades are hardly evidence against his claim. So after that, there was even a news story in the local newspaper saying, Suring is now going to change his strategy. He's no longer going to say, I was forced to confess by the extortion of Kenneth Beaver. He's now going to say, I only confess to protect Elizabeth from the electric chair. And so that was even documented. His lawyers were out there saying, we're switching theories here. And so, of course, he did say that during his 1990 trial in middle June in Bedford County. The jury concluded that that was a lie. So he lied under oath again. Got it. I'm wondering how you feel the case has been represented over time, because, again, you've sort of observed this from the very beginning. What are your feelings about that? Yeah, that's, that's also interesting. You can sort of divide it into sections or periods. From 1986 to 1990, as all these things in Europe were going on, Americans didn't pay much attention. They didn't really care much. When Elizabeth Hasem was convicted in 1987, upon a theory that she helped Yins commit the murders, there was a little blip of attention, and people thought he, well, he probably seemed to be guilty. Then 1990 comes along, he's convicted. Nobody really has much of a doubt about his guilt. 
interest falls off because, first of all, it's not a death penalty case. He's just going to prison for a long time and nobody really cares that much. Uh, but then, Zuring, to his credit, I mean, he is absolutely incredibly persistent and energetic and intelligent. His IQ is in the 120s and the top 5%. So he's not a dumb guy and he can write and he can be very persuasive. He can be very charming. And uh, so in 1995, he brought out his first book about the case, an e-book called Mortal Thoughts, in which he basically just went through his trial testimony and said, I confess to protect Elizabeth. There are a couple blips of attention at that time. And his then lawyer said, I believe my client is innocent and I'm going to write a forward to this book. Then about 12 years went by where nobody really paid much attention. He was still actively writing politicians and activists and lawyers on both sides of the Atlantic. He never, ever gave up. And then in 2007, that is when the perhaps the third or fourth wave of attention came because he convinced a German reporter named Karin Steinberger. And in 2007, she interviewed him and wrote an article called Forgotten Behind Bars. And she got a major German talk show host, think Oprah of Germany, Johannes B. Kerner. And so Johannes Kerner flies to Virginia in 2007, interviews Suring, asks him some critical questions, uh, and then does an entire primetime news special watched by probably two or three million Germans. And after that point, the German media got very interested in the case, and the American media gradually got interested in the case, but the German media were there first. And then in 2016, there was a huge leap forward because Jens Zuring himself compared the results of a 2009 DNA test to a 1985 blood group test and put together an argument that he was excluded from the crime scene and that two strange men were there. And that really gave everything wings. That's when people like Chip Harding and John Grisham and Jason Flom, they all came aboard because they were convinced that DNA evidence had cleared Suring and implicated two anonymous alternative male suspects. Maybe this is the point to spend a moment talking about the DNA there. Can you elaborate on that and take us through what exactly that DNA evidence is? First of all, like, who requested it? How did it come into being? And what does Jens Suring claim that it shows? And what do you think that it shows? And, and what are the various experts on either side backing up those opinions? Sure, happy to do so. Now, when the crime was committed in 1985, DNA testing didn't exist at all. Forensic DNA testing was only invented in 1987 by a guy named Alec Jeffries out of England. In 1985, the only thing you had was blood group testing. So you had to like put a cotton swab into what was actually blood. It had to be blood. And you could determine whether it was type A, type AB, type O, etc. And so that was the only kind of testing available at the time of the crime. Uh, then in 1990, when Zuring was tried, they asked a lab tech named Elmer Gist, or you know, a forensic analyst, can we do DNA testing? Because by that time, DNA testing existed, but just barely. And he said, no, we can't do it because at this time we would need like a large bloodstain the size of like a dime or a quarter. And we'd have to use all of it up 
And frankly, the blood typing testing already used most of it. So with our crude DNA testing in 1990, we can't test the DNA here. So that was the status quo. Of course, during the 1990s, there were many high-profile exonerations based on DNA testing. Virginia passed a law in 2001 saying any inmate can request DNA testing under the following conditions. Zuring did not do so. And in fact, he's never requested DNA testing himself personally to this day. What then happened was that in 2009, the state of Virginia started its own DNA testing program called the DNA Testing and Post-Conviction Notification Program. Uh, and they spent like about five or ten million dollars. And what they did was they went back to all the criminal cases from the 1980s, which had viable possible DNA tests left, you know, viable sources of DNA. So, you know, this is now 19 years after Zering's trial. The DNA testing technology advances by gigantic leaps and bounds every single year. It's amazing. It's like the space race from 1950 to 1969. And so by 2009, they had much better tests, which could work with smaller amounts. And so they found the samples from Zuring's own case. They were contaminated. They'd been held in an unsecured lockup facility, warehouse. 85% uh, of them were too degraded to test. The small minority that did yield results yielded DNA profiles that were, all of them were partial. Um, and also, there were no DNA profiles from Derek or Nancy Hasen. They had both been cremated shortly after their deaths, and uh, at that point, nobody had found the blood samples that were taken during the autopsy. So the authorities didn't even have the blood samples from the two victims. However, the forensic analyst in 2009 concluded that it is extremely likely that all of the male DNA samples left at the crime scene whether from blood or skin cells or skin oils or sweat or saliva or snot, you know, because DNA testing doesn't care where the DNA comes from, they concluded that based on these partial profiles, and they all seem to point to the main male victim who bled the most. And so then in 2009, Zuring was represented by a lawyer at Hogan and Hartson, and she said to him, you shouldn't really do anything with these DNA results. They're not helpful to you. They're not harmful. They're not helpful. But you don't really want people talking a lot about DNA in this case. So I advise you not to say anything about these DNA results. And he didn't from 2009 onward. So remember, he did not, he never requested DNA testing. How do you know about that conversation? Uh, because I have sources. I'm afraid I can't reveal them. But I have uh, documentary evidence that this was the advice that he received from his lawyer at that time. And when it, if there's litigation, then I can reveal that documentary evidence in secret to a German or American court. But I'm allowed as a journalist to say that I know this to be the case. So Zuring, being a smart guy, this was very good advice. You know, this is... He, it's, it doesn't prove your innocence. It doesn't prove you're there, but it also doesn't prove your innocence. And so it's really kind of a wash. And uh, so he obeyed this advice for seven years. And then he switched lawyers to a guy named Stephen Rosenfield. And at some point, it, it appears clear from what Zuring has written about his case, 
which is millions of words, millions, uh, that he himself decided to compare the 1985 serology report, blood types, with the 2009 DNA report, seven years later, without ever having requested DNA testing. And according to his own analysis, he's not stupid, uh, some of the type O blood stains at the crime scene, which is his blood type, had DNA evidence from a male donor, which was inconsistent with his own blood type. And so he talked to his lawyer. The lawyer hired some experts, McClintock and Shanfield, as we know. They looked at, they did not do any independent testing or research of their own at all. All they did was look at the 2009 and the 1985 report, and they came to their own conclusions. And so their conclusions back up Yen Zer. Their conclusions are that the O blood type samples that were collected, which are Yen Zering's blood type, but then again, 45% of people have that, um, they also contain DNA from a male donor who was not Yen Zering. But then in 2018, 2020's special, 2020 hired Dan Crane, another well-regarded expert, and also Betty Lane Deport, who is not only a lawyer, but also has a master's degree in forensics. And 2020 hired both of them to look at these two reports. Once again, nobody did any fresh testing. There was no way to get any new testing. And both of those independent experts concluded that there is no evidence of any two people at the crime scene it is overwhelmingly likely that the blood of Yin Zering was mixed in with the blood or sweat or saliva or skin cells of Derek Hasem. And that's why you have a blood sample with typo blood, which is Yin Zering's blood, but a DNA profile, a partial DNA profile that seems to be from one other male, most likely the person who bled out something like six pints of blood all over the entire house, Derek Hasen. According to Hamill, these possible interpretations of the DNA are what led the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project to decline Jens's case. Because they said, according to the DNA tests that have been done in 2009, and according to all the other evidence in your case, we simply cannot come to the conclusion that this is the right kind of case for the Innocence Project. Zuring even had one of his supporters fly up to New York and interview a guy named Peter at the New York Innocence Project, whom I believe to be Peter Neufeld, but I cannot prove that. And Peter said, we can't take this case because, first of all, the latest DNA results, they're okay. You know, we could get better ones nine years later. But they don't point to the innocence of your client. The whole context doesn't really work out for that. And also, we would have to really go into depth about all the other evidence against your client before we could take him on, because we don't want to waste our credibility on cases that don't have real potential. And so Zuring tried very hard to get his case accepted by the Innocence Project. And I believe to their credit, because they're still careful, they declined him. You've written a lot about other famous cases and argued that cases where convictions were overturned were actually rightful convictions. Would you say that you are sort of devoted to 
innocence fraud cases? And do you think that that kind of work is important and necessary? No, I would definitely not associate myself with this so-called innocence fraud movement. I mean, I went on to Roberta Glass's podcast, you know, and she kept peppering me. You know, she asked me questions about your case. And I said, it's been conclusively resolved by Italy's highest court. You are innocent. So is Raffaele Solicit. And there's just no doubt about that. The entire theory of the case was ludicrous. And so your case is certainly not innocence fraud. And there are other cases like Timojin Kensu from Michigan, a clear case of wrongful conviction. I also am, you know, I'm working on a piece about Jerry Sandusky, the famous notorious child molester, who the evidence in that case is extremely questionable. I also certainly do not believe that Woody Allen is a child molester. So I look at cases based on as many facts as I can get from primary credible sources which I consider to be the sources closest in time to when a person is giving a statement. So detectives' reports, assuming the detectives are reliable, and trial transcripts of testimony given under oath and forensic reports completed near the time of the crime and eyewitness testimony given very near the time of the crime. That's the gold standard. Everything that comes later gets a little bit less and less reliable because, especially if the case is highly publicized, there are mixed motives. So many innocence fraud people, they just simply reflexively assume whatever the prosecution says was golden and that appeals courts never get anything wrong. And that's just ridiculous. No lawyer would ever claim that. I guess maybe another way to phrase this question might be, you seem to have done a fair amount of, of journalistic work in this kind of debunking, taking a claim of innocence and trying to show that it's, in fact, a rightful conviction. Have you spent equal amounts of time in your journalistic activities advocating for someone like Temujin Kensu or trying to prove someone's innocence claims to be true? That's a great question. And that's something I'm aware of, and that's something I'm doing right now. And because my view as sort of a lawyer who's trained to evaluate arguments and try to preserve credibility is that I've done a lot of pieces now that I have full confidence in and I'm proud of that I believe critically analyze claims of innocence that are not convincing. I hope that that makes me more credible. If I come out and I say, based on my extensive research, that I believe this person was really wrongfully convicted, I'm hoping people will take that more seriously. And so my sort of proximal target is, is, is actually Jerry Sandusky. And so that's probably going to be my next journalistic project. It's going to take months because I work very slowly and this is also not my job. But, you know, one of the key weaknesses in the Timujin Kinsu case, in my view, is similar to the key weakness in your case, Amanda, that the sort of theory of how the crime went down just makes no sense. It requires all these absurd leaps of logic and assumptions that violate human nature. And I'm certainly going to read the entire trial record and all the appeals before I comment on his case, because that's what I always do. But I would really love to come out with something. It's been covered a lot, but I like to think that I have a little bit of a talent for condensing and boiling down stories to get to the most relevant elements. 
Andrew Hamill makes a good case for the value of debunking potentially fraudulent innocence claims. But we wanted to get Justin Brooks' take on how innocence advocates maintain their credibility. I certainly have 30 years of experience of people writing to me, telling me that people aren't innocent, that I believe are innocent, that I've supported, including Amanda. So that's certainly not uncommon. I've always been very careful never to support cases I haven't personally vetted. And I, in fact, just last night sent a, an email to someone who was angry at me because I wouldn't sign off on a petition and I wouldn't share it on my social media because anybody can say they're innocent. And I don't know until I've actually been through the case and done my due diligence. And so most of the cases you see me support over the years have been my own personal cases. Occasionally there's cases like Amanda that, that I've really looked into and done the research and seen that they're fully innocent. And I've supported that. I think when innocence organizations get into cases that become public and they take strong stands for them, and later on people find out oh, that's actually a guilty person, they start having doubts about all the cases. And that's why I've always been very careful in our organization that the only cases we put on our website that were actually working, that haven't been exonerations yet, are cases that we know are, are airtight, that the courts have not exonerated this person yet, but we got such a strong case that it's going to withstand scrutiny. Otherwise, we don't just put cases on our website that we're working on because we know with some of those cases, we might come to a dead end where we're like, oops, here's something we didn't know about. Maybe Andrew Hamill is right that people will take his advocacy for an innocence claim more seriously if he's been critical of supposedly bogus innocence claims. But we still find it odd that he's chosen to devote his expertise and tenacity in the direction he has when there is a huge opportunity cost. In your experience, how important or useful is it to have media professionals spending time and energy, if they do have those talents and, and time, to try to dig through and publicize cases for innocence that are underserved? Oh, well, I mean, the greatest example in my career is Melissa Segura. She was covering the Brian Banks case for Sports Illustrated. I just had a random conversation with her while she was interviewing Brian, where she said, you know, why'd you get into this work? And I tell her the story of Marilyn Malero. And then years later, I get an email from her saying, I left Sports Illustrated. I went to Chicago. I started investigating that detective you told me about. And that's now led to dozens of exonerations that her, her wow. digging out. Yeah. I mean, it's literally Woodward and Bernstein stuff where she spent a huge amount of time digging into it. And there's now literally dozens of people out of prison in Illinois because she wrote that article. I always think about it because I think, you know, you could spend years banging your head against the wall and accomplish nothing. Mm -hmm. I have a five-minute conversation with this woman, and that might be the most important thing I've done in my life in terms of... <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, but that's the extraordinary, right? I mean, the reality is most of the media coverage of these cases is fairly lazy. So, yeah, those talents could certainly be used to some advantage. One hope we have for Andrew Hamill is that he does consider applying his talents to open innocence cases in the future. So just bringing us back home to the Jens Suring case, do you have a vision for what a sort of just outcome in this case looks like? Sure. And actually, I do have a vision for that. And it's largely been achieved. So back in late 2019, when I came out with my first articles, then I was regarded as this weird voice in the wilderness. 
I was not a big player in the German media scene. I still am not. And throughout 2000, he was on million viewer German talk shows. And they were treating everything he said as basically incontestable. But since, especially since I participated in an eight-part podcast, which has now been downloaded over a million times, it's in German, it's called Das System Zuring, the, Sur, the Zuring system. And it's going to be released in English pretty soon. And especially since that podcast came out, there were these very powerful interviews, not only from Terry Wright, but also from a former very close confidant of Yin Zuring, a woman who had spoken to him every day for years, who had maintained his website and published articles on his behalf. And she sort of did interference on journalists for him for years and years. And then eventually, after reading my articles and the Terry Wright report, she came to the conclusion that she had been assisting in a really negative enterprise, in a massive fraud that had convinced a lot of journalists on both sides of the Atlantic. And she knew from personal firsthand knowledge of close daily contact with Yin Zuring and from thousands of emails and documents he had produced that he was lying. He was lying to journalists. He was lying to podcasters. He was lying to his own lawyers. He was even lying to her. And he was doing it without any real compunction or remorse. And eventually, she became so disturbed and so distraught that she reached out to me under a pseudonym. And she said, my conscience can't take this anymore. And then working with her and a bunch of other great producers, I, I was just an interview guest on the broadcast. I didn't make it. But I put her in touch with these people and we're still in touch to this day. She's also going to be in the various documentaries coming up about his case. She's entirely credible. Yen Zering is now saying that she only turned against him because uh, she was in love with him and he spurned her advances. That's a lie. He says that to people in private. He doesn't say it in public because he's afraid of getting sued. But he does say it in private. And I've spoken to people whom he said it to. And I've also spoken to this person, Eva Beck, and she absolutely rejects it. And there is absolutely no proof that she is a spurned lover. She is somebody with a functioning conscience who simply could not participate in broadcasting lies. Since that podcast came out, there's been a massive sea change. Suring is no longer getting invited onto any kind of public talk shows. Every YouTube video he makes, every TikTok, every Instagram, there are comments, why don't you address the allegations made in this podcast? And he simply refuses to do so. He never reaches out to his critics. He never engages them in dialogue. He's never sent me a single email or message. He simply runs immediately to lawyers. And this woman, Eva Beck, who came out and simply said, I can't do this anymore, he used his lawyers, a high-profile, incredibly expensive German law firm, to try to get her fired. Where does he get all this money? Well, he gets it from a book deal with Random House for over 100,000 euros, and also 
an agreement with Netflix for a couple of thousand euros to use his archive, and also an agreement to sell the rights to his life story. I cannot reveal who this contract was with, but a conservative estimate is that after he came back to Germany, he has gained about something around 150,000 to 200,000 euros. So he has money to pay for lawyers, to sue me, to sue Afa Beck, and to sue Dr. Alice Brauner, who produced the podcast that was critical of his claims. And now the German media has finally gotten savvy. And so they interview me, they interview Dr. Brauner, they interview Afa Beck, and most of the recent public have been negative. All he does now is he gives wine and crime dinners in small German towns, or, you know, sometimes in large German towns like Cologne. And he says, I'll be here for three days, and you can come eat a dinner at this nice local restaurant and hear me say why I'm innocent of these crimes. And by the way, the entrance fee is 50 bucks. And so, I mean, that's basically all the press attention he gets these days. And even now, the press attention isn't all that favorable because even in these small towns, people say, is it really ethical to profit from talking about a murder that you were convicted of? So his star is definitely on the wane. He thinks that he's going to get a giant boost of favorable publicity from the upcoming Netflix series. Uh, well, I think I am too, because... I gave a seven-hour interview to Netflix, and I believe that the Netflix series is going to be more balanced than many, many other Netflix series, because I've had very long conversations with both of the directors, and I've explained to them exactly what I think about the case and what evidence and documents that I have to prove my claims. And of course, documentary filmmakers always lie to you. I know that. They always lie to you. They always want to keep you sweet. And so they've told me, oh my God, you're going to be the star of the documentary. I know I'm not. They've told Yen Zering that. He's probably sophisticated enough to know he's not. But I, gradually, everything is fading away. What I would love to see happen with Yen Zering is for nobody to pay attention to him anymore. I, I've said, I'm incredibly happy that he was not subject to the death penalty. That would have been horrifying. And I eagerly embraced publicly his release on parole, even though he has never shown any remorse, even though he has never done anything to try to make up to the victims. I think 33 years in prison is a brutal penalty, especially in Virginia prisons. But I think it's appropriate for a brutal crime. And I've never wavered in saying, I'm happy that he's released. I'm happy he's living in freedom. I just think he should do what Elizabeth Hasem did. Elizabeth Hasem expressed her profound remorse for her horrifying crime. She never sought publicity except for maybe three or four interviews over 33 years. I mean, she learned to train dogs and to do braille and to do computer-aided design. And when she was released and deported to Canada, she said, I am completely dropping off a public radar forever. I don't want anything more to do with this case. She was taken in by members of her own family. You know, she helped murder their own parents, and they still took her in. Now, half of her family hates her. 
the other half has forgiven her, precisely because of the profound remorse and genuine, sincere anguish she has shown, and the fact that she never complained about being sent to prison and never said she was innocent. She's now living under an assumed name in Canada and, you know, having a great time. The one thing that she desperately wishes for, before anything else, is that people would just stop talking about this case. She just wants to go on alone and anonymous and build the second half of her life in peace and comfort without reporters knocking at her door. And Yin Zering is, is making that impossible because he's constantly seeking attention. He's constantly posting new videos. He's constantly directly accusing her of murdering her parents. So what I would really like to see is for him to do what she did, to just fade into the background, change your name, get a job as an editor or a translator, live out the rest of your life in peace, comfort, and safety in North Germany without any more attention. Going into this interview with Andrew Hamill, we weren't sure we were going to make an episode about this. We were still quite conflicted about how to resolve things with Jens. We expressed those doubts and uncertainties to Justin Brooks, looking for advice. And so meanwhile, Jens, who became a good friend of ours, was like emailing us and we're ghosting him and we're not replying. And he's wondering why we're just ghosting him and we don't know what to do. And finally, we wrote him an email a few months ago and said, hey, man, we just we feel like we owe you honesty about this, about why we haven't been responsive. And it's because we read this thing and we don't really have full faith in your innocence anymore. And I know that's probably horrifying for you to hear. And if you are innocent, that must totally suck because we had become close. On the converse, if you've been lying to us, like that sucks for us. Um, and we haven't gone out there and proclaimed your guilt. And I don't know that you are guilty, but certainly I don't feel the same confidence in your innocence as I did before. And if he reacted very negatively to this and... Yeah, and in not some very, not very kind ways, he was very angry at Chris, um, but then also very angry at me and saying that I was the pot calling the kettle black and there was way more proof of my guilt than his guilt. And I was just like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 dude. But I don't know. I mean, what you guys should do about this is, I think, first of all, you did the sort of courageous and right thing to do. I think most people would just continue ghosting and be like, let's close that chapter in our life and not address it at all. So I appreciate that you did that. I don't know if I would have done that, but I think it's the right thing to do for sure. I don't know that you have any particular responsibility to do anything else. In the end, we had to weigh a lot of factors regarding our ethical duty. We had publicly advocated for Jens's innocence and given him a platform to accuse Elizabeth and attack the authorities who investigated his case. We were no longer certain about his innocence, and we felt a duty to consult even more experts. We reached out to friends in the innocence movement, DNA and false confessions experts, to get their opinions. We sought opinions from law enforcement and DNA specialists among our own patrons, and all these sources affirmed the skepticism we felt about Jens's innocence claims. We also felt that we owed it to Jens to be honest with him. We reached out with that very difficult news, 
effectively shattering our relationship with him. But we also felt that we owed it to all of you listening out there, to Elizabeth, to the detectives and investigators in this case, and to Derek and Nancy Hasem. We may never know definitively if Jens killed the Hasems, but we think there's a lot of compelling evidence for his guilt after all, and very little in the way of exonerating evidence. We also think that after three decades in prison, Jens has done his time and is no longer a danger to society. And we hope that Jens can someday understand our commitment to the evidence, to the truth, and our refusal to accept comfortable or easy answers. Thanks to Justin Brooks and Andrew Hamill for joining us. You can find Justin traipsing through South America, leaving a trail of innocence projects in his wake. And you can find Andrew Hamill at hamillwords.com. Look for his upcoming book on the case, Martyr or Murderer, Jens Zering, The Media, and The Truth. And if you're an ethical masochist too, please get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And please leave us a five-star review and spread the word on social media. Better yet, tell five friends in the real world that Labyrinths is criminally underappreciated. Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written and produced by us, with editing and sound design by Josh Thane and theme music by Josh Budo Karp.